Chapter Four, Part Two, A Famous American Statesman, by Sarah Knowles Bolton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alexander Hamilton, Part Two. Matters in the states had so grown from bad to worse, and Congress, with its limited powers, was so helpless that a convention was finally called at Philadelphia, May twenty fifth, seventeen eighty seven to provide for a more complete and efficient union. Nine states sent delegates, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. General Washington was made president of the convention. A plan of government was submitted, called the Virginia Plan, which provided for a Congress of two branches, one to be elected by the people, the other from names suggested by the state legislatures. There was to be a president, not eligible for a second term. Then the New Jersey plan was submitted, which was simply a revision of the Articles of Confederation. The debates were earnest, but most intelligent, for men in those times had studied the existing governments of the world and the fate of precious republics. Hamilton was present as a delegate, and, early in the convention, gave his plan for a new government, in a powerful speech, six hours long. He reviewed the whole domain of history, the present condition of the states, and the reasons for it, and then developed his plan. Those only could vote for president and senators who owned a certain amount of real estate. These officials were to hold office for life or during good behavior. The president should appoint the governors of the various states. Of course, the believers in states' rights could not for a moment concede such power to one man, at the head of a nation. When Hamilton affirmed that the British government was the best model in existence, he awoke the antagonism of the American heart. He probably knew that his plan could not be adopted, but it strengthened the advocates of a central government. Many delegates went home under protest, but the Constitution, brought into its present form largely by James Madison, was finally adopted and sent to the different states for ratification. The opposition to its adoption was very great. Hamilton, with praiseworthy spirit, accepted it as the best thing attainable under the circumstances, and worked for it night and day with all the vigor and power of his masterly intellect. To the Federalist, he contributed fifty-one papers in defense of the Constitution, and did more than any other man to secure its ultimate adoption. Henry Cabot Lodge, in his clear and admirable Life of Hamilton, says, as an exposition of the meaning and purposes of the Constitution, the Federalist is now, and always will be cited, on the bench and at the bar, by American commentators, and by all writers on constitutional law. As a treatise on the principles of federal government, it still stands at the head, and has been turned to as an authority by the leading minds of Germany, intent on the formation of the German Empire. Party feeling ran high. When a state enrolled herself in favor of the Constitution, bonfires, feasts, and public processions testified to the joy of a portion of the people, while the burning in effigy of prominent Federalists, mobs, and riots testified to the anger of the opponents. In the state of New York, the contest was extremely bitter. Hamilton used all his logic, his eloquence, his fire, and his boundless activity to carry the state in favor of the Constitution said Chancellor Kent. He urged every motive and consideration that ought to sway the human mind in such a crisis. He touched, with exquisite skill, 
every chord of sympathy that could be made to vibrate in the human breast our country our honor our liberties our firesides our posterity were placed in vivid colors before us when told by a friend who was just starting on a journey that he would be questioned in relation to the adoption of the constitution hamilton replied god only knows several votes have been taken by which it appears that there are two to one against us but suddenly his face brightened as he said tell them that the convention shall never rise until the constitution is adopted the excitement in new york city became intense crowds collected on the street corners and whispered hamilton is speaking yet late in the evening of july twenty eighth seventeen eighty eight it was announced that the constitution had been adopted by new york the vote standing thirty to twenty seven at once the bells were rung and guns were fired a great procession was formed of professional men and artisans bearing pictures of washington and hamilton and banners with the words federalist liberty of the press and the epoch of liberty the federal frigate hamilton was fully manned and received the plaudits of the crowds when the constitution was adopted at last washington was made president april thirtieth seventeen eighty nine it was not strange that he chose for his secretary of the treasury the man who had studied finance at the campfires of the revolution at thirty-two hamilton was in the cabinet of his country at once congress asked him to prepare a report on the public credit stating his plan of providing for the public debt in about three months the report was ready it advocated the funding of all the debts of the united states incurred through the war as to the foreign and domestic debts all persons seemed agreed that these should be paid but the assumption of the debts of the different states met with the most violent opposition those who owed a few million dollars were unwilling to help those who owed many millions hamilton advocated a foreign loan not to exceed twelve millions and a revenue derived from taxes on imports such a revenue as would not only provide funds for the new nation but protect manufacturers from the competition of the old world the believers in protection have had no more earnest or able advocate than hamilton his next report was an elaborate one upon national banks and the establishment of a united states bank which should give a uniform system of bank notes instead of the unreliable and uneven values of the notes of the state banks his financial policy while it aroused the bitterest enmity in some quarters raised the united states from bankruptcy to the respect of her creditors abroad and at home when the old cry of unconstitutional was heard as it has been heard ever since when any great matter is suggested hamilton taught the people to feel that the implied powers of the constitution were great enough for all needs and that the document must be interpreted by the spirit as well as the letter of the law capitalists were his strong advocates as they well knew that a firm and safe financial policy was at the root of success and progress very soon after his report on banks he transmitted to congress a report on the establishment of a mint showing wide research on the subject of coinage besides these papers he reported on the purchase of west point of public lands navigation laws on the post office and other matters always showing careful study good judgment and patriotism that he was accused of being a monarchist signified little as there were hundreds of people at that time who feared that the republic would go down as had others in past centuries 
he so deprecated the lack of central power in the government that he exaggerated the dangers of the people's rule this lack of trust in the masses and in the power of the constitution and thomas jefferson's trust in self-government and belief in states rights led at last to the bitter and public disagreement of these two great men the secretary of the treasury and the secretary of state each was honest in his belief each was tolerant of most men but intolerant of the other to the end of life hamilton naturally became the leader of the federalists as jefferson the leader of the republicans or democrats as they are now called one party saw in hamilton the great thinker the safe guardian of the destinies of the people the other party thought it saw a bold and unscrupulous man who would sit on a throne if that were possible hamilton's character was assailed sometimes with truth but oftener without truth he was not perfect but he was great and in most respects noble the french revolution was now interesting all minds Genet had been sent to america by the french republic as her minister hamilton urged neutrality and looked with horror upon the growing excesses in france jefferson with his hatred of monarchy was lenient and in the early part of the revolution sympathetic the united states became divided into two great factions for and against france Genet fanned the flames till the patient washington could endure it no longer the unwise minister was recalled and neutrality was proclaimed april twenty second seventeen ninety three through all this matter hamilton had the complete love and confidence of washington when it was deemed wise to send a special commissioner to effect a treaty with england that proper commercial relations be maintained hamilton was at once suggested party feeling opposed and john jay was appointed when he returned from his mission great britain having consented to pay us ten million dollars for illegal seizure of vessels we agreeing to pay all debts owed to her before the revolutionary war the people rose in wrath against the treaty and burned jay in effigy when hamilton was speaking for its adoption at a public meeting in new york he was assaulted by stones gentlemen he said coolly if you use such strong arguments i must retire after this he wrote essays signed camillus in defense of the treaty and helped largely to secure its acceptance meantime the excise law whereby distilled spirits were taxed caused the whiskey insurrection in pennsylvania hamilton who believed in the prompt execution of law urged washington to take decisive measures the president called out thirteen thousand troops and the refusal to pay the taxes was no more heard of hamilton like jefferson had become weary of his six years of public life his increasing family needed more than his limited salary and he resigned returning to his law practice in the city of new york when a new president was chosen to succeed washington it was not the real leader of the party hamilton but one who had elicited less opposition by strong measures john adams a man of long and distinguished service both in england and america hamilton seems to have preferred thomas pinckney of south carolina and thus to have gained the ill will of adams which helped at last to split the federal party when adams and jefferson became the presidential nominees in eighteen hundred hamilton threw himself heartily into the contest in the state of new york here he found himself pitted against a rare antagonist the most famous lawyer in the state except himself aaron burr he was well born being the son of the president of the college at princeton and the grandson of jonathan edwards 
Like Hamilton, he was precocious, being ready to enter Princeton when he was eleven years old. He was short in stature, five feet and six inches in height, with fine black eyes and gentle and winsome manners. Both these men had won the most enduring friendships from men and women, homage indeed. Both were intense in nature, though Burr had far greater self-control. Both were brave to rashness, both were untiring students, both loved and always gained authority. Burr had won honors in the Revolutionary War. He had married at twenty-six, a woman ten years older than himself, a widow with two children, with neither wealth nor beauty, whom he idolized for the twelve years she was spared to him, for her rare mind and devoted affection. From her he learned to value intellect in woman. He used to write her before marriage, deal less in sentiments and more in ideas. When she died, he said, the mother of my Theo was the best woman and the finest lady I have ever known. For his only child, his beloved Theodosia, he seemed to have but one wish, that she be a scholar. He said to his wife, If I could foresee that Theo would become a mere fashionable woman, with all the attendant frivolity and vacuity of mine, adorned with whatever grace and allurement, I would earnestly pray God to take her forthwith hence. But I yet hope by her to convince the world what neither sex appear to believe, that women have souls. At ten years of age she was studying Horace and Terence, learning the Greek grammar, speaking French, and reading Gibbon. This Theo, the idol of his life, afterward married to Governor Alston of South Carolina, loved him with a devotion that will forever make one gleam of sunshine in a life full of shadows. When the dark days came, she wrote him, I witness your extraordinary fortitude with new wonder at every misfortune. Often, after reflecting on this subject, you appear to me so superior, so elevated above all other men. I contemplate with you such a strange mixture of humility, admiration, reverence, love, and pride. Very little superstition would be necessary to make me worship you as a superior being. Such enthusiasm does your character excite in me. I had rather not live than not be the daughter of such a man. Burr's success in the law had been phenomenal. When he was studying for admission to the bar, he often passed twenty hours out of the twenty-four over his books. And now, Colonel Burr, at thirty-six, after being in the United States Senate for six years, was the candidate for vice president on the Jefferson ticket. Hamilton's eloquence stirred the state of New York in the contest but Burr's generalship in politics won the votes, and he was elected. Hamilton went back again to his large law practice. Men sought him with the belief that if he would take their cases, there was no doubt of the result. An aged farmer came to him to recover a farm for which a deed had been obtained from him in exchange for Virginia land. Hamilton heard the case, then wrote to the wealthy speculator to call upon him. When he came, Hamilton said, you must give me back that deed. I do not say that you knew that the title to these lands is bad, but it is bad. You are a rich. He is a poor man. How can you sleep on your pillow? Would you break up the only support of an aged man and seven children? He walked the floor rapidly as he exclaimed, I will add to my professional services all the weight of my character and powers of my nature, and you ought to know, when I espouse the cause of innocence and of the oppressed, the character and those powers will have their weight. The property was reconveyed to the farmer, who gratefully asked Hamilton to name the compensation. Nothing, nothing, said he. 
hasten home and make your family happy. Hamilton was clear in his reasoning, a master in constitutional law, persuasive in his manner, sometimes highly impassioned, sometimes solemn and earnest. Says Henry Cabot Lodge, force and intellect and force of will were the sources of his success. Directness was his most distinguishing characteristic, and whether he appealed to the hand or the heart, he went straight to the mark. He never indulged in rhetorical flourishes, and his style was simple and severe. That which led him to victory was the passionate energy of his nature, his absorption in his work, his contagious and persuasive enthusiasm. There was a fascination in his manner by which one was led captive unawares, says another writer. On most occasions, when animated with the subject on which he was engaged, you could see the very workings of his soul, in the expression of his countenance, and so frank was he in manner that he would make you feel that there was not a thought of his heart that he would wish to hide from your view. Alexander Hamilton was the greatest man this country ever produced, said Judge Ambrose Spencer. He argued cases before me while I sat as judge on the bench. Webster has done the same. In power of reasoning, Hamilton was the equal of Webster, and more than this can be said of no man. In creative power, Hamilton was infinitely Webster's superior. He, more than any man, did the thinking of the time. His chief relaxation from work was at the Grange, his summer home in Harlem Heights, not far from the spot, it is said, where he first attracted the eye of Washington. Beaches, maples, and many evergreens abounded. The Hudson River added its beauty to the picturesque place. Here he read the classics for pleasure and the Bible. To a friend he said, I have examined carefully the evidence of the Christian religion, and, if I was sitting as a juror upon its authenticity, I should unhesitatingly give my verdict in its favor. I can prove its truth as clearly as any proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. At the Grange he was especially happy with his family. He said, My health and comfort both require that I should be at home at that home where I am always sure to find a sweet asylum from care and pain. It will be more and more my endeavor to abstract myself from all pursuits which interfere with those of affection. Tis here only I can find true pleasure. When Hamilton was forty-four, he endured the great affliction of his life. His eldest son Philip, nineteen, just graduated from Columbia College, deeply wounded by the political attacks upon his father, challenged to a duel one of the men who had made objectionable remarks. The lad fell at the first fire, a wicked sacrifice to a barbarous code of honor. After twenty hours of agony he died, surrounded by the stricken family. Hamilton was especially proud of his son, of whom he said when he gave his oration at Columbia College, I could not have been contented to have been surpassed by any other than my son. For three years Hamilton worked on with a hope which was never broken, constantly adding to his fame. And then came the fatal error of his life. All along he had opposed Aaron Burr. When named for a foreign mission, Hamilton helped to defeat him. When the tie vote came between Jefferson and Burr in the presidential returns, Hamilton said, The appointment of Burr as president will disgrace our country abroad. When Burr was nominated for governor of New York, Hamilton used every effort to defeat him, and succeeded. Burr, exasperated and disappointed at his failures, sent Hamilton a challenge. He wrote to Hamilton, 
Political opposition can never absolve gentlemen from the necessity of a rigid adherence to the laws of honor and the rules of decorum. I neither claim such privilege nor indulge it in others. Alas, that some men in public life, even now, forget the laws of honor and the rules of decorum in their treatment of opponents. Everything in Hamilton's career protested against this suicidal combat. He was only forty-seven, distinguished and beloved, with a wife and seven children dependent upon him. Before going to the fatal meeting, he wrote his feelings about dueling. My religious and moral principles are strongly opposed to the practice of dueling, and it would even give me pain to be obliged to shed the blood of a fellow creature in a private combat forbidden by the laws. To those who, with me, abhorring the practice of dueling, may think that I ought on no account to have added to the number of bad examples, I answer that my relative situation, as well in public as private, enforcing all the considerations which constitute what men of the world denominate honor, imposed on me, as I thought, a peculiar necessity not to decline the call. The ability to be in future useful, whether in resisting mischief or effecting good, in those crises of our public affairs which seem likely to happen, would probably be inseparable from a conformity with public prejudice in this particular. He made his will, leaving all, after the payment of his debts, to his dear and excellent wife. Should it happen that there is not enough for the payment of my debts, I entreat my dear children, if they, or any of them, should ever be able, to make up the deficiency. I, without hesitation, commit to their delicacy a wish which is dictated by my own. Though conscious that I have too far sacrificed the interest of my family to public avocations, and on this account have the less claim to burden my children, yet I trust in their magnanimity to appreciate as they ought this my request. In so unfavorable an event of things, the support of their dear mother, with the most respectful and tender attention, is a duty all the sacredness of which they will feel. Probably her own patrimonial resources will preserve her from indigence, but in all situations they are charged to bear in mind that she has been to them the most devoted and the best of mothers. And then the great statesman, after writing two farewell letters to my darling, darling wife, conformed to public prejudice by hastening with his second at daybreak to meet Aaron Burr at Weehawken, two miles and a half above Hoboken. It was a quiet and beautiful spot, one hundred and fifty feet above the level of the Hudson River, shut in by trees and vines, but golden with sunlight on that fatal morning. At seven o'clock the two distinguished men were ready, ten paces apart, to take into their own hands that most sacred of all things, human life. There was no outward sign of emotion, though the one must have thought of his idol, Theodosia, and the other of his pretty children still asleep. Hamilton had determined not to fire, and so permitted himself to be sacrificed. The word of readiness was given. Burr raised his pistol and fired, and Hamilton fell headlong on his face, his own weapon discharging in the air. He sank into the arms of his physician, saying faintly, This is a mortal wound, and was borne home to a family overwhelmed with sorrow. The oldest daughter lost her reason. For thirty-one hours he lay in agony, talking, when able, with his minister about the coming future, asking that the sacrament be administered, and saying, I am a sinner, I look to him for mercy, pray for me. Once, when all his children were gathered around the bed, he gave them one tender look, and closed his eyes till they had left the room. 
he retained his usual composure to the last saying to his wife frenzied with grief remember my eliza you are a christian he died at two o'clock on the afternoon of july twelfth eighteen o four the whole nation seemed speechless with sorrow in new york all business was suspended at the funeral a great concourse of people college societies political associations and military companies joined in the common sorrow guns were fired from the british and french ships in the harbor on a platform in front of trinity church governor morris pronounced a eulogy general hamilton's four sons the eldest sixteen and the youngest four standing beside the speaker thus the great life faded from sight in its vigorous manhood leaving a wonderful record for the aspiring and the patriotic and a prophecy of what might have been accomplished but for that one fatal mistake aaron burr hastened to the south to avoid arrest but public execration followed him he became implicated in a scheme for putting himself at the head of mexico was arrested and tried for treason and though legally acquitted was obliged to flee to england and from there to sweden and germany finally he came home only to hear that theodosia's beautiful boy of eleven was dead poor and friendless he longed now for the one person who had never forsaken him his daughter she started from charleston in a pilot boat for new york and was never heard from afterwards probably all went down in a storm off cape hatteras when it was reported in the papers that the boat had been captured by pirates burr said no no she is indeed dead were she alive all the prisons in the world could not keep her from her father when i realized the truth of her death the world became a blank to me and life had then lost all its value when he was nearly eighty he married a lady of wealth but they were unhappy and soon separated he died on stanton island cared for at the last by the children of an old friend his courage and fortitude the world will always admire but it can never forget the fatal duel by which alexander was taken from his country in the prime of his life and in the midst of his great work the name of hamilton will not be forgotten the honorable chauncey m depew of new york on february twenty second eighteen eighty eight gave the great statesman this well-deserved tribute of praise the political mission of the united states has so far been wrought out by individuals and territorial conditions four men of unequal genius have dominated our century and the growth of the west has revolutionized the republic the principles which have heretofore controlled the policy of the country have mainly owed their force and acceptance to hamilton jefferson webster and lincoln the first question which met the young confederacy was the necessity of a central power strong enough to deal with foreign nations and to protect commerce between the states at this period alexander hamilton became the savior of the republic if shakespeare is the commanding originating genius of england and goethe of germany hamilton must occupy that place among americans this superb intelligence which was at once philosophic and practical and with unrivalled lucidity could instruct the dullest mind on the bearing of the action of the present on the destiny of the future so impressed upon his contemporaries the necessity of a central government with large powers that the constitution now one hundred and one years old was adopted and the united states began their life as a nation end of chapter four